Hello, and welcome to Ether, the podcast associated with the Department of the U.S. Air Force's flagship strategic professional journal, Ether, a journal of strategic air power and space power. I'm Dr. Laura Thurston Goodrow, and today we are joined by General Ron Fogelman, U.S. Air Force retired. General Ron Fogelman retired from the U.S. Air Force after 34 years of active service. On his final tour of duty, General Fogelman served as the 15th Chief of Staff of the U.S. Air Force and a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Prior to that assignment, he was Commander-in-Chief of U.S. Transportation Command. As Chief of Staff, he served as the Senior Uniformed Officer responsible for the organization, training, and equipage of 750,000 active-duty Guard, Reserve, and civilian forces serving in the United States and overseas. As a member of the Joint Chiefs, he served as a military advisor to the Secretary of Defense, the National Security Council, and the President. General Fogelman is an active pilot with an extensive background in fighters, mobility aircraft, and general aviation. He has flown over 8,400 total hours, and his fighter experience includes operational tours in the F-100, F-4, F-15, F-16, and the A-10. He served two tours in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War, flying 315 combat missions and logging 806 hours of combat fighter time. On his first tour, he flew 80 missions as a misty fast forward air controller. While serving as Commander-in-Chief of U.S. Transportation Command and Commander of Air Mobility Command, he flew mobility aircraft in support of humanitarian and contingency operations on six continents. General Fogelman's staff experience saw a heavy emphasis on long-range programming and strategic planning. While serving as U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff, he hosted the first worldwide conference of air chiefs. General Fogelman is currently the Chairman of the Board of Tactical Air Support Incorporated, Chairman of Million Air FBO, and he serves as a board member on Black Mountain Investments and the Clinkett Haida Tribal Business Corporation. He has chaired and served on the boards of numerous public and private corporations and devotes considerable time to national security and community affairs. He is a member of the Falcon Foundation, Airlift Tanker Association, Council on Foreign Relations, and the Air Force Association. Since retiring from the Air Force, he has served on the Defense Policy Board, the NASA Advisory Council, and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory Advisory Board. He has chaired an Air Force Research Laboratory study on directed energy weapons and chaired a National Research Council Committee on Aeronautics Research and Technology for Vision 2050, an integrated transportation system. He served on the NASA Mars Program Independent Assessment Team, the Congressionally Directed Commission to Assess U.S. National Security, Space Management, and Organization, the NASA Shuttle Return to Flight Task Group, and the Independent Assessment Panel to examine the management and organization of national security space assets. He lectures on leadership, international affairs, and military issues, and has published numerous articles on air and space operations. General Fogelman is joining us today on the podcast to discuss his review essay of John Andreas Olson's edited volume, Air Power Pioneers, from Billy Mitchell to Dave Deptula. The review is featured in our spring 2023 issue of Ether, a journal of strategic air power and space power. The book is comprised of 12 mini biographies of leading airmen written by contemporary air power scholars, including Air University faculty and others. The book was published in January by the Naval Institute Press and is part of a series on the subject of air power. Most, but perhaps not all of the subjects of the biographies will sound familiar. Billy Mitchell, Hap Arnold, Haywood Hansel Jr., Hoyt Vandenberg, Curtis LeMay, Bernard Schriever, Glenn Kent, David Jones, Bill Creech, John Warden, Tony McPeak, and Dave Deptula. General Fogelman, sir, I can't think of a person more qualified to discuss this book. Welcome to the podcast. So thank you, Laura. I'm pleased to be here and uh, pleased to discuss this book, which I found 
to be um, very interesting, very worthwhile for folks who are interested in the subject of leadership and the subject of uh, development of air power. So Olson, in his preface, um, specifies that while a few of these exceptional airmen distinguish themselves in combat, he writes, most made their main contributions away from the front lines. So would you say this exemplifies a unique Air Force culture approach to service? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting because as the Air Force evolves and as warfare evolves, I think we, we might be reaching a point where we have to go back and, and look quite critically at how we define combat. You know, historically, combat has been a frontline thing or an aerial engagement or whatever uh, particular form of combat you were involved in. Uh, I, Out of curiosity, I went and, and looked the definition up just to see what it said. And, it, and basically, it says uh, combat is a fight or a contest between individuals or groups or uh, a secondary was its active fighting in war. And uh, as I said, it, it implies it's a frontline aero engagement thing. But I think in today's, in today's Air Force and today's environment, combat needs to be redefined or at least understood because the cyber warrior is going to be extremely important in today's environment and in future war. The, the space guardian uh, will not uh, necessarily be co-located with whatever his or her weapon system is, the logistician, the tanker, and all that. So I, I think that the key thing here, and that's what kind of comes through in the book, is while most of these uh, key leaders had some form of combat experience, it was after that, when they were in leadership positions, that they really began to more thoroughly ex- explore the whole subject of air power and, and where it's gone. So I, I will say that the thing that the book really kind of brings out is that the combination of both professional knowledge uh, in an area and acquired experience really are two of the keys that help these individuals in the book uh, rise to the position they were. And that's, you know, to me, that's still a a very critical aspect of uh, leadership development. That's not necessarily taught in the professional schools, but it's just a fact of life. It was interesting to see how they were able to take, you know, what they learned and the experience back and and actually do something with it. Yeah, not only that, but it, but in some cases, their experience really led them to say, so this is what we were able to do with the assets and capabilities we had at this time. However, if we had this, this, or that, we could have been much, much more capable. And in my own experience, and I, I, I reflect upon this because I think it's sort of the mindset that these individuals had as they, as they uh, came back. Uh, for instance, in Vietnam, air power was, was really, uh, I think, limited by, by what I uh, see as a series of of things that gave the enemy sanctuary. Okay, one of the sanctuaries the enemy had, it it built. It was a very sophisticated integrated air defense system. Another sanctuary was political, you know, coming out of the White House and that whole discussion. But there were other sanctuaries, weather. We weren't good at operating at weather. At night, we weren't good at operating at night. And camouflage and this sort of thing. And so very similar to the experience of these leaders who ran into similar situations, 
coming out of the Vietnam War, the the leadership of the Air Force, and I was not, you know, I was a junior guy here. I'm watching other guys now. Creech contributed to this and and some of these folks. But the leadership set about trying to eliminate those particular sanctuaries. So this is where the research and development and the new applications come in. And so you had after the Vietnam War, the, you know, we went into that war with airplanes that were not really designed for what we used them for. We didn't have a good close air support airplane. We didn't have a good air superiority airplane, et cetera. So we come out of the war and it's during the 1970s and 80s then that we begin to build the capability with things like the lantern pod and uh, an F-15 and an, F- an A-10 and a, an F-16. And all this then, you know, culminates in in the display of air power that we had during the first Gulf War. But it, it, it shows the same sort of thought that these leaders went through, having had some kind of an experience, whether it was on the front lines or air to air or whatever, and seeing the need to continue to develop this. So uh, that's that's sort of uh, my perspective on on how they contributed and, and to a large extent why they contributed. Now, there are other aspects of this. And, you know, there's the academic side of things. There's the professional military education side. All these are important. But anyway, uh, that's that's uh, kind of my perspective on this. So in and those thought leaders, the book sort of talks about how they as a collective they kind of tell, you said they talk about the wider story about how aerospace ha- power has developed so along, you know, identifying sanctuaries. I'm curious, what do you think the sanctuary that the Air Force should be looking at today is? Well, one of the things that we had solved in one respect, and we're now losing that capability and have to get it again, is the ability to identify moving targets on the face of the earth. You know, we during the first Gulf War, we had a, a really nascent capability that we were just really testing at that time. But J-STARS and J-STARS, something we've had, we built it on an old platform and and it's it's time to transition away from it. And this is clearly one of those missions that will transition, I think, to space. That's a, that's a smart place to take it. So that's that's one of those things that we can see. But we're challenged and this is where uh, Secretary Kendall's seven operational imperatives are kind of to take us. I mean, we still have what what we have to, uh, I think, as airmen always look at is our core missions, you know, where we got air superiority, we have the rapid mobile mobility, we have global strike, surveillance and reconnaissance, and then a little softer but very important is global intelligence integration command and control the forces. So those are our core missions. And we can't lose sight of that. And we have to be looking in those core missions at what it is that has changed in the nature of war that we we need to be pushing on. And, and that's where there's this great connectivity between the core missions and what Secretary Kendall's trying to do with his his imperatives. That's that's really interesting. It's just away from the book in a sense, but it's it's a continuum of what the book talks about. Right. And so this is this is important. 
So kind of similar along the same lines, you talk about the importance to the to the profession of our air power at all levels of staying true to principles of air power, while like you talk about being willing to adapt to changing technology and shifting geopolitics. Do you want to say anything more about we we kind of talked about that a little bit, but no, I, I think again, um, you know, it's it's really interesting because it's a large organization, the Air Force and the Space Force, and and sometimes we don't do a good job of just reminding our our airmen and our uh, guardians that uh, what it is that their their real purpose in life is, and and sometimes it's important for the leadership to step back and remember this. And what we got to remember that is that the Space Force and the Air Force exist for one reason and one reason alone. And that is the it's to deter war. And if deterrence fails, to be in a position to fight and win America's wars. That's what it's about. We're not a social actions agency. We're not an employment agency. We're not any of those things. We have to pay attention to that stuff. But we need to focus on being able to fight and win America's wars. That's what it's all about. And I think that these leaders in the book, as they went through, as we went through different periods of time, they never lost focus on that. Even when the weapons changed, like Glenn Kent, and you you know, you're now not talking so much about General Kent was focused on these, What? how do you use it or not use the nuclear uh, weapons in, in warfare? So you see these kinds of things as you go along, uh, that uh, these people were clearly uh, thinking about. And bringing up the individuals in the book, do you want to talk? I know I understand you knew or know a number of these folks. Is there, you know, your experience with with them? Are there any anecdotes that you'd like to share? Well, they're kind of, it was fun. And I, you know, because I ended up, uh, after my time at Duke, I spent a short time as a, an instructor at, at the Air Force Academy teaching history. And one of the additional duties I got while I was there is in the early days at the academy, these air power leaders were the people who fought to get an academy. And so anytime they were in the Colorado area, they wanted to come visit their academy. And as you can imagine, this could become a little bit of a burden for the leadership there. I mean, if you got a LeMay yeah. come to town or a Billy Mitchell, or not a Billy Mitchell, but a Possum Hansel or uh, Jimmy Doolittle, these guys would come in. They always wanted to come out. So they they had sort of set up this thing where, you know, the, the old, uh, very interested individual would show up, the soup would greet them and all that. And then they had this this oral history program, you know, where they would, hey, okay, Fogelman, you got you got three hours to kill with General LeMay. Uh, <laughs> we need some oral history here. And as a result of that, that's that's where I got to meet some of these, you know, older kinds of guys. And uh, that included uh, Hayward Hansel, you know, his, his, who was known by the world as Possum Hansel. Miss Jane and I got to know he and his wife, Dada, very well. We had entertained him in our home because he was out there on several occasions. And, and I, I remember one of the things, and, and Hansel was a, as a young guy, was an accomplished uh, aviator. I mean, he, at the Air Corps Tax School down there uh, back in the 1930s, Chennault had this demo team. It was called Three Men and a Flying Trapeze. And they, they did their whole air show with their airplanes tied together with a four-foot piece of rope. And Hansel was a wingman in that thing. You know, I mean, this is, and when and when uh, 
Chenault got ready to go to China. He really wanted Hansel to go with him. So Mrs. Hansel tells us a story about how uh, she knows what Chenault's trying to do. And uh, she she's in the living room and basically ends up telling Chenault, this is my house. If my baby wants to cry, he can cry here. And Possum is not going to China. You know, it's one of these things. <laughs> the other thing that came up in the course of uh, these, uh, somebody asked General Hansel, how did you get the nickname Possum? And, you know, he's going through, well, you know, I'm this and that. And his wife said, Possum, you know, it's because you look like a possum. You know, <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> so that's kind of fun. And, you know, I remember Doolittle isn't in the book, but interviewing him and also LeMay. And I, I was interviewing LeMay on targeting because that had been a big thing in Vietnam and all that. So it was kind of interesting to hear how he developed his targeting system, this stuff. So that's how I met some of these people. And then others I met either while they were in active duty or had retired. And uh, that was true in the case of uh very, very much in the case of General Jones. He was such a gentleman that he would tell this great story himself. He was training up to to go to the Second World War in the bomber business, and he had been up in North Dakota doing some training, and he met this young lady up there, and he kind of liked her a lot, but he wasn't sure he wanted to get married before he went to war and all this stuff. But then he went down to Texas for some more training, and he decided she was pretty nice. So he, he wanted to ask her to marry him. So he calls her and he says, will you marry me? And she said, yes, who is this? <laughs> and they used to tell the story in, you know, in social things to show how tough it was on people in North Dakota. They would get out of there any way they could. So anyway, they were a delightful couple and, you know, he, he served very well there. In the case of... Of course, uh, I actually flew combat with both General Creech and General uh, McPeak in the same airplane. Not at the same time, those two, but I flew with Creech and I flew with McPeak. It was when I was a MISTI pilot and uh, assigned to FUCAD, and uh, the MISTIs were located up there. Creech was the DO of the 37th TAC fighter wing, so he used to come down occasionally and fly with the MISTIs. And so... I, I was an IP, and so I would fly with him. And um, I, I only flew once in the same airplane with him. But on another mission, he he came over to the target area with a wingman, and uh, he, he was a superb pilot. He was, you know, in addition to everything else. And, of course, Tony McPeak and I, the Misties were kind of a rowdy crowd. And, and so at one point, uh, the leadership in the wing decided – they needed somebody to give them a little discipline. So they, they sent McPeak over to be the ops officer. And then eventually he became the commander after I left. But uh, he and I flew together on a combat mission uh, together. So I knew these people in a different kind of life. And it's in a way, it's analogous to the relationship between Dave Deptula and Chuck Horner. When Horner was stationed uh, down in Florida, uh, Deptula was his IP. And so... You know, years go by and situation changes and suddenly Deptool is sent over to the mid Middle East with John and, and uh, Horner knows him, trusts him, likes him, includes him into his uh, planning cell. So I met General Glenn 
uh, when he was working for Rand, and I, I didn't know him well, but the thing that struck me about him was how respected he was by everybody in the business who really understood. I was I was not in SAC, and you know, while I understood what the PSYOP was and this sort of thing, I, I, I don't think I fully appreciated the work that he had done until later in life uh, kind of thing. That's, that's kind of some of the experiences that I had with these uh, individuals, you know, through life. Very interesting. As you think about the individuals and the stories that you've told, that thread of continuity um, that seems to run through these is that all the individuals are willing to, I guess, kind of buck the system and take calculated risks, but risks nonetheless for reputation and career to stand, to kind of stand up for what they think is the right thing to do. Um, incredibly difficult to do that in, you know, whoever you are, wherever you are, that's hard to do. Uh, and it doesn't always work out. But I want to use that and tie in, I don't know how many of our listeners know that you are the author of the Air Force core values that we still adhere to today. Integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all we do. So with all this in mind, what message do you have for airmen, guardians, civilians, contractors, and really just people in general regarding remaining true to yourself and your convictions? Well, in the review, one of the things that I point out that I think all of these leaders shared were three virtues. And I, these are what I think enduring qualities that leaders must have to be successful. And the first one I talk about is competency. Uh, and so it's just like in the case of Creech and McPeak, they were aviators first, but they were damn good aviators. They were good at it. They did it in lots of different places. They weren't a flash in the pan. And that's true if you look at almost every one of these guys in, in terms of their careers. So they knew their business. And, and that's important because if you're trying to lead an outfit and you don't know what what the real mission is and how to accomplish it, the troops smell at a, at a, at a heartbeat. And the second thing I point out in the book is courage. And it's this thing you just talked about having the courage to do what is right when nobody else is looking or when you find a situation that needs to be rectified and uh, it may be unpopular but but uh, you have to do that courage not in the as i'm talking you know it's not about valor it's not about bravery it's the courage to to do things and the third one is character and character is how you approach other people and are seen by it. And I think it's driven by the core values. So if if you can adhere to these things, integrity, because um, the folks can s smell it in a minute if you're a, a phony or whatever, uh, integrity is extremely important. It's also the linchpin by which you get support of the public. If the public believes that you're really interested in what your real mission is, <laughs> fight and win America's wars, then, you know, they'll stay focused with you. So uh, that's the last part of it. As I say, I think it's driven by the core values, integrity, service before self. Uh, look, everybody raises their hand. They take an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. What a lot of people don't recognize, and this was pointed out by a noted British military historian, John Winthrop Packett, that again, I happened to meet as a result of him coming to the academy while I was teaching there. 
and and which he says, you know, with an oath like that, there's an unlimited liability clause. So you take that oath to support and defend the Constitution. But it also says, if you are called upon to lay down your life for your family, your friends, and your freedoms, you're expected to do it in this profession. And you got to look around at a lot of other professions before you can find anyone that that comes close to that. Probably police and EMT and some of that, but that's it. And so service before self. And then, you know, the excellence part just really had to do with the demands of the profession. You know, we deal with with lethal weapons. We make decisions that affect the lives of young men and women. And so you you got to strive for excellence as you go do that. And, you know, if you do that, if you really think about that, what it does for you is you, you over time, you build what I can call an internal moral compass, you know. And so when you find yourself in this leadership position, you don't have to start building. What do I believe in? What do I think? You know, you arrive there and you say, this is who I am. This is what I believe in. This is what I want to do to take care of the troops and accomplish the mission. So that's that's kind of that vector. Thank you. Do you have any final thoughts, anything else you'd like to say about the book or um, in general? No, I, I again, as I said, I, I recommend the book uh, be read by people who are interested in leadership. Beyond that, I think all this stuff is not just history. It's connected to what's going on today. And so, like I say, the legacy of these people that are identified in this book are the core missions that in the U.S. Air Force identified with being responsible for. And so then you find yourselves in a situation like we're in today, where we're transitioning from the kind of warfare we were involved in for 20-some years into a near-peer fight. And it's, uh, it's gratifying to see that the leadership has stayed true to what the core missions are, but at the same time recognizes there are things that need to be done to increase that capability, enhance it, and sustain it. And that's, again, where we end up with Secretary Kendall's uh, operational imperatives. I think those are things that everybody ought to understand. And it doesn't hurt to have an institute that understands this and proliferates the word. And so I think in the case of Dave Deptula, what he's done with the Mitchell Institute right. is really a, a marvelous thing. So I'd recommend the book. I think it's a good read. Well, it's it's just really been my honor and pleasure to visit with you today briefly about this. Um, I really appreciate your your insights and your time. And I commend the book to everyone listening. And again, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for what you're doing.